One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving Olive in June. Olive in June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hello and welcome to the New Statesman podcast. I'm Caroline Crampton, standing in for your regular host, Helen Lewis. On this week's episode, I talk to George Eaton and Stephen Bush about the Labour leadership contest and the London mayoral race. Then John Elledge and Barbara Speed analyse the pros and cons of women-only carriages on public transport. And finally, Kate Mossman talks to Tom Schoen about Woody Allen. So I'm joined by George Eaton, our political editor, and Stephen Bush, the editor of The Staggers, to talk about this week in politics. And we're going to start off by talking about, surprise, surprise, Jeremy Corbyn, but not so much Jeremy Corbyn as how his rise and his almost leader status is affecting other parties. Um, George, you've written about this in your column this week. Um, What does he mean for the Lib Dems, say? Mm. Well, the Lib Dems of all the parties um, opposing Labour are perhaps in the most difficult position now because... Tim Farron very clearly planned to position himself to the left of whoever was elected Labour leader. He opposed the welfare reform bill. He opposed military intervention in in Syria. Uh, And there would have been space to the left of anyone else but Jeremy Corbyn. And short of leading an insurrection against Buckingham Palace, Tim Farron is not going to be able to position himself to the left of Corbyn. So his new pitch is... Um, to moderate voters, so those who think the Tories are too right-wing, those who will find Corbyn too left-wing, come to us. But because of Farron's left-wing image as a as a campaigner, uh, it will be a trick that's a lot harder for him to pull off than it was, say, for Nick Clegg in the past. Because he's put in, well, now years of work outflanking Clegg as yes. the left-wing of the Lib Dem party, that it's very hard to just sort of like duck under Jeremy Corbyn and go, hey, I'm a centrist now. Yes. Um, and then for the others, the Tories are divided between those who are obviously jubilant at Corbyn's imminent victory and think this will guarantee them uh, terms more in governments, uh, and those who think this will give them free range to do whatever they want because the opposition will be so weak. But the more thoughtful Conservative MPs, uh, such as Zach Goldsmith, for instance, have warned that you know, an enfeebled opposition means uh, weaker scrutiny, leads to worse governments. And they also fear that Corbyn could even capture the zeitgeist. Some say we're in such an un- unpredictable political world now that um, we've seen the rise of the SNP, we've seen um, the, rise of the rise of UKIP for a period. Who knows how this could end up? And others worry that Corbyn will, at the very least, drag the political debate to the left so that the centre is uh, slightly to the left of where it is now. And that means that just as 
George Osborne was forced to take on some of Ed Miliband's policies or versions of them, such as the so-called living wage mm. and such as higher taxation of, of non-DOMs and uh, promising more money for childcare, the NHS. So the Conservatives will have to embrace a more left-wing program if they're to seem an adequate um, party in, in this new age of uh, in this new age of polarized debate. Mm. What about the Greens, Stephen? I mean, the Greens are the the really interesting one because there's a strong argument. And, you know, I was talking to Green who made exactly this point to me that they had a perfect storm in 2015. There'd been five years of austerity. There were lots of people who wanted a stronger version of expectation. And in Ed Miliband, there was a very uncharismatic Labour leader. Um, and and they had, in Caroline Lucas, the option of someone to be a national face for that. But instead they had Natalie Bennett, who um, was an even less charismatic figure than Ed Miliband. And now they're going to be having five years of Jeremy Corbyn, whose politics may not be enough to win a national election, but he very much is, I think, toxic to the Greens' chance of uh, picking up any more seats in the foreseeable future. The flip side of that is, my instinct is there are some voters who genuinely do not want to um, vote for the government. You you see it from the people who were voting Lib Dem in 2010, who voted UKIP in 2015. They went from the most pro-immigration, pro-European party to the least uh, sympathetic to immigration and European party because they thought both times they wouldn't get in office. So the Greens, I think, will keep more votes than we expect. Just as a protest. Just as a protest. Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't be surprised if there are some people who think of themselves as tribally Labour who look at Jeremy Corbyn's uh, Labour Party in 2020 and go, I don't want to vote for that. But they do not want to vote for the Conservatives, who will vote Green. Mm. Uh, because actually, you know, half of Green voters think that Labour were too soft on immigration and welfare, which is, blows my mind. But we know these people exist. People vote in uh, non-intuitive ways. I think for the Lib Dems, yeah, they have a much bigger problem. In the, There are only eight of them, so they're not going to get much attention anyway. And as George says, Tim Farron was someone they picked thinking that he would be to the left of Yvette Cooper, the left of Andy Burnham, the left of Liz Kendall. There is not, there's not much left of Jeremy Corbyn. <laughs> um, so, George, you referenced a little bit there, but around the, in the run-up to at least the 2015 election, we were talking about this as the, the year of smaller parties, the, you know, the SNP becoming the third party in Westminster. With the massive surge of support towards Jeremy Corbyn, that feeling has kind of receded a bit. We, we feel, we're just talking about Labour and Conservatives again. Yes, yes, we are. And um, of course, one of Jeremy Corbyn's sort of central contentions is that he, as being a, a radical leader, a different kind of Labour leader, is well placed to win back support from UKIP, mm. from the SNP, from the Greens. Has he got anything to support that, apart from him saying that? Um... He does in the sense that if you look at some of the positions these voters have, some of the position he takes mm. align better, more closely with them. But I think in the case of, I think Stephen's right, I think Greens will perhaps prove more resilient than some expect simply because of their distinctive brand. Um, and in some ways they can say Corbyn is a retro socialist, he wants to reopen the mines, he's committed to uh, perpetual growth, we're a much more modern, forward-thinking party mm. that can adapt to climate change. Uh, in the case of UKIP, While some of their supporters might like his economic interventionism and and bashing the city, of course he has a very liberal stance on immigration, which is the number one issue for them. And as Mm. we've seen in the latest net migration figures, is is going to remain a a big political theme. And then the SNP, of course, he's embraced some of their 
distinct or share some of their distinctive positions, such as opposition to Trident and opposition to tuition fees, but with one notable exception, independence. So for the 45% who voted yes, they're not necessarily going to embrace Corbyn, um, given that we're still really in the, the early stages of, of the SNP's uh, uh, hegemony. Mm. And actually, in some ways, it's sort of win-win for the SNP one way or the other. Either, um, yeah, and if you look at what SNP voters were telling the British Electoral Survey, it was independence phenomenon. But so either that's wrong, and then they all flock back to the SNP, then if he's defeated in England, and you're the SNP, you just go, well, look, there is no appetite in England for this radical left alternative. Mm. You have to have independence. Or he fails in Scotland and England, and the SNP, that works fine for them. Well, there's, I don't see a way that Corbyn doesn't work out well for the SNP. Mm. Now, let's uh, come quite a lot further south than that and talk about the London mayoral primary, which is being voted on at the same time as the Labour leadership. And in this week's New Statesman, uh, we have put our support behind Tessa Jowell. Um, George, you were uh, help, helped make this decision. Um, why... Just outline our reasons. Mm. So she's run a very hopeful, positive campaign with her message of One London. Uh, she's competent. She's got proven experience, most notably with, with the Olympics. She's addressed a lot of the issues that um, we think are most important. Housing, um, early years, education, inequality, um, building, keeping uh, relations uh, with, with business and London status as, uh, as, a, as a great uh, global economic hub. Um, and she, all the polls show she's very well placed to beat Zach Goldsmith. I think there was a YouGov poll which put her 57 to his 43. And this is the one election that Labour has a, has a good chance of winning if it, if it has, if it has the right candidate. And that's part of something that I know she said and I think other candidates have said as well is that this is something that, this is an election Labour can win and really needs to win. That they, they need to show that they can actually govern stuff still. Yes, exactly. And particularly because although London is a Labour voting city, they have, of course, voted for Boris Johnson in the last two times, a Conservative mayor. And of course, Ken Livingstone won it as, as an independent. So if you look at the mayoral elections, Labour doesn't have a very good record when, given its uh, strength in the city, it really should. Mm. Um, but we have also in the magazine, both uh, this week and in the past, Stephen praised the sort of depth of talent in the field for London's uh, mayoral candidates, haven't we? You know, Sadiq Khan, Diane Abbott, David Lammy are all pretty serious candidates. Yeah, it's um, it, it is a, a very strong field. I think partially it's a strong field because before the election, you were able to go around openly hiring people if you were running for the mayoral campaign. They've been, you were able to sit and think about the face you wanted to put to your campaign. So we're kind of getting the best version of Sadiq Khan, the best version of Tessa Jowell, the best version of David Lammy, the best version of Diane Abbott. Whereas actually for the first um, month or so of the leadership campaign, we had this very tired, um, very flat, you know, kind of, I mean, what, what, what was Yvette Cooper's message for the first month? It, there didn't seem to be one. Um, ditto Andy Burnham, you know, it was this kind of very sort of flaccid performance. And all of them had to hire on the fly, you know, basically in that month after the leadership election, yeah, they're the all general uh, election, you mean? the general yeah. election. They're all, in the words of uh, Carmel uh, Brown, uh, the head of press for Jeremy Corbyn, coalitions of the willing and the available. Whereas the mayoral campaigns just partly are people who these politicians like have worked with before. I suspect if you put that machine behind any of the four candidates in the Labour leadership race, 
uh, yeah, I think Jeremy Corbyn will take some beating, but I think it would be a much closer race than we've had. That's really interesting. So it's uh, to do with the, well, we know it is, but we don't often get to hear about it, the kind of backroom talent. But this is actually something that we have looked at in the magazine this week, is uh, who who's who in Team Corbyn, is who's, who's behind Jeremy Corbyn and who's going to be kind of, we are very, we are pretty sure, installed at the kind of levers of the Labour Party very shortly. Uh, George, mm. you helped out with that. Yes, yeah, so perhaps the definitive player and the man who will take a lot of the credit for his victory is Simon Fletcher, who, um, since we're talking about London, of course, served as Ken Livingston's chief of staff and is likely to take on that position um, in a Corbyn administration. And he's he's been his campaign director. He got on board very early and um, clearly saw how a left candidate could could come through and um, and has built that uh, that coalition. Mm. Um, who would you pick, Stephen, from the kind of Corbyn team as kind of one to watch? Um, I think in terms of sort of keeping the show on the road, I think Simon Fletcher is going to be a key player. But I think if I were to pick a force which might lead to some more friction, mm. um, I I think you know. John McDonnell and um, Jeremy Corbyn have been political allies for a long time. Pol- all politicians are naturally ambitious. If I were John McDonnell, a small part of me would be wondering, if I had been the candidate of the left to run, would I now be leader of the Labour Party? That's the kind of thing which year one, year two, year three isn't a problem. Yeah, in 1996, Blair and Brown were getting on fine. <laughs> but there is the interesting potential for real friction if other people from the left of the Labour Party start to think that whoever's turn it was to make up the numbers and be there to broaden the debate would be leader of the Labour Party right now. Well, there you go, listeners. You heard it here first. Uh, 2024, McDonnell versus Corbyn. <laughs> joined by City Metrics John Elledge and Barbara Speed to talk about the idea of having women-only spaces on public transport, which is an idea that Jeremy Corbyn has floated just this week. Barbara, is that right? Yes, well, just to satisfy any Corbyn fans out there, what he did is he, in a kind of larger point about women's safety on public transport and in public in general, he's setting up a few measures and he said that he would consider having a consultation about women-only carriages in trains and tubes and this has kind of well it's provoked quite a sort of heated debate on both sides right yeah essentially yeah I mean I think a lot of people think that's quite an extreme reaction to harassment because it's kind of saying you you guys can't be in the same space or else one of you will harass the other um but it's not as outlandish as it sounds because it's actually already uh kind of a similar similar schemes are already in use around the world um so there are women-only carriages in Japan in Brazil, um, in parts of India, and in Mexico. Um, And so there's been quite a lot of research into whether this actually works or not, um, which is basically quite inconclusive. But um, the kind of general trend around the world is that most women generally say that they would feel safer on a women-only carriage, but I think a lot equally have reservations about what message um, that move would send. So whether you're kind of moving backwards towards an era where you need to segregate people of different identities. Well, that's kind of the, the idea, isn't it? Um, that by having a, a women-only carriage to keep women women safe, you're not addressing the problem 
of the harassment, you're just sort of putting a door between it. Yeah, and it is quite reasonable to say it's expecting the victims to do something about it rather than exactly. expecting like perpetrators to stop or the government to educate them or other kind of measures like that. But as you say, it was a suggestion of a possible consultation. Yeah, exactly. Rather than rather than a kind of as soon as I'm as soon as I'm prime minister, <laughs> I, will. I will immediately uh, make half trains for women only. Yeah. Not what he said at all. Um, and to but, his credit, what he said was, "I will speak." to lots of women about whether this would be something they want which is a good thing <laughs> yes because th- i suppose that is the secondary point is as you say it it does exist in other parts of the world and it has uh it, it sort of had varying success yeah and that and as you'd expect the varying success kind of relies on how well it's enforced kind of the culture of the city where it's used all those different kinds of things so i imagine what he would do is think how does london operate how do londoners think what do women in London think and then weigh it up based on those factors. But you can measure it by does it bring down levels of harassment but you can also measure it by does it make women feel more safe because that's a, a good outcome in its own right. Yeah definitely and I mean in Japan I think it is Japan where um, they did a survey of whether women would want more women only carriages than they already had and I think around half said that they would which is they're not even I mean so that we don't know how many say I hate them but that implies that quite a good number approve of them and think that they work but I suppose the larger point here John and I'll bring you in here is this um is how this has been covered in the media and reacted to by people who are interested in the Labour leadership race mm. because as Barbara's explained you know it's it's part of a broader policy statement and he's just said he's going to talk to some people about the possibility but it's become this kind of you're either for it or against it type thing. I, I think that's probably going to happen every time Jeremy Corbyn opens his mouth from here on in to be honest. Um, one of the interesting things about the idea of women's only tube carriages is this isn't the first time it's come up in British politics. It was actually floated last year by uh, Claire Perry who's a Conservative MP and and woman um, famously a woman there. Um, and that prom- provoked remarkably little reaction. I mean, Barbara wrote a piece on it for, for City Metric, but I don't think it really got much pick up beyond that. Um, suddenly Jeremy Corbyn, who's a lot further from, from, you know, the, 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 the uh, engine room of power, um, says this and the whole place blows up. And there was a remarkably, um, angry reaction on social media to some of the coverage of this um where where people on on uh, corbynistas were, <laughs> were were basically accusing um everyone who'd written about it as having misrepresented their candidate even when uh, as as i think barbara's piece did it just you know, quoted uh, what corbyn had said and then said you know here are the here are the pros here are the cons it was a very sort of straight down the line piece the reaction to that on, in some corners of social media was just insanely over the top, where people saw it fitting into this sort of narrative of uh, the media and the establishment being against Jeremy Corbyn in some kind of fundamental way. Um, you do kind of wonder if, is this going to happen every time um, the man who is probably going to be leader of the Labour Party, is this going to happen every time he opens his mouth and sort of mentions a policy from now on? that there's going to be a chorus of people basically screaming, well, he didn't mean that. Um, it, it just seemed like a slightly odd reaction to get at that level of politics, to be honest. But this, this is the point, isn't it, that Jeremy Corbyn is someone who's been an MP for everything. Cool fact. 
a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. 30 years, but who's never held any kind of office whatsoever, has never had to operate in that environment He's before. never had to take responsibility for what mm. he says, um, was the uncharitable way of putting it. It's, if you're a backbench MP, you can kind of, to an extent, you can op- your job can be trolling. You can kind of go around and sort of cause a bit of noise over an issue you care about, and you can try and cause a bit of trouble for the government of the day. Um, and, and, you know, you can get a long way doing that and kind of make an impact and sort of try to sort of nudge politics in one direction or the other. If you're the leader of a party, suddenly your words have force. And when you say, well, maybe this is something we should look at, then people are going to interpret it as this is something that I would like to look at when I am leader of the Labour Party. Um, and even further than that, then when I am prime minister, it's something I'll look at using a Whitehall department with the view to actually doing it. I suppose that's the end of that train of thought, isn't it? Um, and as a result, do you think the way the way he operates is going to have to change once he sort of settles into the that way of doing things? I don't know. Um, 18 months, two years ago, I would have said, well, you know, obviously you can't possibly operate at that level of politics um, purely oppositionally. You've got to be constructive. But then you kind of look at how the SNP have done very well with this kind of, you know, you know, down with this sort of thing as kind of a party slogan, uh, where, where if you look at the way the, the 56 uh, SNP MPs are operating in, in Westminster, they are basically trolling for a living too. You know, they, mm-hmm. they, they, they're not really putting that much effort into legislating, but they are putting a lot of effort into kind of stealing Labour seats and kind of being very visible in the House. Because they're sort of playing to the, the gallery of their supporters there rather than actually trying to get anything done. Um, and that's been a very effective uh, way of doing things for them. Um, I think with uh, the, the, the base of Corbyn's support will probably actually continue to react quite well to this slightly uh, oppositional uh, political stance. The question is whether he'll be able to sort of get beyond... 20, 25% of the electorate and actually kind of have a hope of getting into government with mm. this strategy. And I suppose, Barbara, this is sort of the perfect issue for this. In this as you say, the, the kind of global research and evidence is not particularly conclusive either way. It also includes a, a hefty dose of gender politics, which like always gets people fired up. It's it's kind of, I, although I'm, I'm very sure the Corbyn team didn't pick this because for those reasons, um, it has by accident sort of ticked all the boxes that are required for exactly the kind of politics John's describing. Yeah, certainly. And also, I mean, that even, I mean, everyone is repeatedly kind of sharing the very words that Corbyn used to describe this policy, but even something about that was very much like, like me, like me, whatever my supporters say, this is what I will do. And again, he, I'm sure he would take into account kind of data and research around this this issue but equally he's he just seems kind of obsessed with saying the right things basically um for this very specific base of supporters mm. it is a bit of a throwback mm, absolutely it, it, it brings to mind you know women only waiting rooms on train platforms in the 50s or something and a lot of the a lot of the policies that corbyn is quite keen on as you know they're, they're left wing but they're very 
old-fashioned style of left, uh, the, the British left, that kind of stops in about the point of the miners' strike. There's not really sort of any sign of having taken on board uh, how the world might have changed in the last 30 years. I'm going to get letters, aren't I? I can already feel it. Yeah, I um, think we should stop now. Yeah. You know, please write to us at the usual address. My name's Kate Mossman, I'm the arts editor of The New Statesman, and I'm talking down the line to Tom Schoen, who wrote the uh, fantastic Woody Allen piece in the current issue. Tom's the author of Woody Allen, A Retrospective, which is published on September the 11th by Thames and Hudson, around the same time as the, uh, the latest, is it 46th Woody Allen film, Irrational Man? Yeah, that's right, 46, an incredible amount. Have you seen it? Uh, yes, I have, yes. And it's very, uh, you know, it's 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 sort of this one is not especially kind of one of his best films. It's not one of his worst. Um, it's like a little uh, brother to kind of match point. Um, there's a mur- there's a murder plot um, that uh, that kind of looks back to match point and I guess also crimes and misdemeanors. I, you know, I like all his films, his later films that kind of whenever they get near the subject of murder, they seem to sort of perk up a little bit. Yes, <laughs> you make the nice point that murder has replaced masturbation as the, the main um, activity of the Woody yeah. Allen male. <laughs> it has, yeah. No, it's sort of, uh, it always used to be jokes about masturbation and now uh, it's murdering your wife. That seems to be the preoccupation. <laughs> Why do you and, think that's um, happened? I Well, I don't know. I mean, they kind of, uh, I mean, Freud makes the, the sort of point about the link between jokes and uh, and hostility. You know, Freudians say that sort of jokes are released hostility um, or latent hostility. So I guess it just could be that. It could just be the sort of transfer of energy, you know, like kind of where the jokes once were, you know, to kind of like pop that tension bubble. Um, now it just sort of comes out in these kind of murderous plots. Um, yes. I honestly, you know, I don't know, but it's uh, but it's certainly very interesting. You know, like it, it definitely has become this sort of preoccupation of his. Yeah. You talk about um, the, you know, the, the, the slang for the comedians killing it on stage, and I thought as well of you know comedians dying on stage if things uh, go yeah, badly. Well, <laughs> exactly right. Yeah, they. They, you know, you kill the audience, you slay the audience, and uh, and then, of course, if you don't, then you die. You know, like, it's, it's mortal combat. Um, you know, certainly I sort of think, like, uh, it makes me think about his sort of early days as a stand-up, you know, and how much he hated it. Like, he absolutely hated having to go on stage uh, until the day when he realized that he could essentially play his own nerves for laughs. You know, mm. so all the sort of ticks and mannerisms that we've now come to associate, you know, with Woody Allen, whether it's that sort of gulping delivery or that sort of stammer or the hesitancy, um, sort of all of that sort of came about or came out of his uh, sort of live act. He would more or less sort of melt around the microphone. Yeah. But the, he found that sort of audiences were sort of at the beginning, you know, extremely resistant to him until they realized that he that he uh, he gave them permission to sort of laugh at him. Yes. Because he was this sort of little shrimp in spectacles, looking like he was just sort of melting in front of the mic, and that was actually a funny sight. So <laughs> once he started to make that work for him, you know, hey presto, off you, off you went. Yes. You, you make a fascinating point about the, um, the genesis of Annie Hall. Can you tell me a bit about the Annie Hall that began as opposed to the one that we know now? Right, exactly. Well, the Annie Hall was written originally as a, scra- a script called Anhedonia, um, which was this mouthy title that basically means the inability to experience pleasure. And it was all about Alvy Singer, the character played by Alan in that movie, um, 
and very much sort of centered around his uh, consciousness. It was very much like a kind of Fellini-esque kind of stream of consciousness movie uh, in which we got access to sort of Alvi's dreams. Uh, there were kind of sequences set in the Garden of Eden. There was an elevator to hell at one point. Uh, there was a murder mystery in it. I mean, it was all over the place. Um, and they watched a cut of it, an early cut of it. They shot this movie, uh, and they watched an early cut of it. It was two and a half hours long, two hours and 20 minutes, rather. And everybody in that editing room just said, it's just a mess. This is terrible. <laughs> it's unsalvageable. And the only thing in it that worked was the subplot. At that point, it was a subplot involving Alvy's romance with this girl, Annie Hall, um, played, of course, by Diane Keaton. And so basically they said, look, that, that's the only thing that works in this. So they started cutting the picture around the romance and around Keaton. Um, and it just kind of came out as this sort of, you know, this classic film about the sort of, you know, the, the life, uh, you know, of this uh, relationship. And, um, I, you know, I always think it's sort of interesting that, that the movie that is most beloved of his is the one that bears the least resemblance to his initial script mm. for it. You know, I think that there's something very, uh, you know, I, I, I think that that tells you something about his willingness, at least at that point, his sort of flexibility in sort of uh, sort of finding the film, you know, mm. in, in, in a sort of rubble, uh, but also sort of let, letting go, like... I mean, all directors, I think, are kind of control freaks, you know, like to, to, to some degree, like they, it's in the job description. Um, and Wood Allen is no exception. But I think that there was an important lesson for him that he learned from Annie Hall, which was essentially how to let go of, of a film and uh, how to let another character, you know, uh, in this case, Annie Hall, played by Keane, dominate the film. And the, the reason I think this is important is because as we all know, it's very hard for comedians to kind of go straight. You know, like it's yes. very hard for people who have this kind of very recognizable comic persona um, to essentially make films that don't involve that persona. We all know how difficult it is for, for, for comics to do that. And Woody Allen's only one of the few that has managed to do that. And, you know, so to me, I look at Annie Hall and I see this kind of very important sort of transfer of power going on. You know, he's, he's, he's basically allowing Keaton to walk off with the film. Um, and I sort of think that, you know, for him, it signaled the beginning of this journey whereby he would be able to eliminate himself from the equation altogether, you know, um, and make, make films like kind of The Purple Rose of Cairo or, you know, uh, Blue Jasmine or... Uh, I mean, I guess he's in Hannah and her sisters, but he's got a very small mm. you know, supporting role. I thought that was um, really something that really surprised me from reading the piece is this sense of him as being a, a, a great collaborator and working best on co-writes rather than when he's left yeah. his own device. Because we think of him as being such a an autonomous, solitary, completely independent yeah. figure. Um, yeah. It's it's fascinating. Do you think you make you you sort of suggest as well that he's almost imprisoned by his own independence at this stage of his career. Can you explain what you mean by that a little bit? Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, you know, of all the sort of directors who sort of came out of that big kind of great sort of he uh, you know, heady experiment of the 70s where everybody was uh, trying out this idea of the, the director as auteur, you know, um, almost all of them sort of crashed and burned to, some, to one degree or another, you know, uh, Altman, 
uh, was kind of exiled from Hollywood for for over a decade. Scorsese sort of crashed and burned and then clawed his way back. Um, you know, Malick kind of went into sort of early retirement and then sort of came back. The only one, and Coppola, of course, you know, crashed and stayed down. But the only one who really came out of it with his independence intact was Woody Allen. You know, like he, in many ways, is like the auteur of auteurs. You know, like he alone has today, as he did from the very beginning, from Take the Money and Run, complete control over every aspect of the film. Um, And it's partly because his budgets are very low. Um, and he makes sort of modest profits, uh, which means that the studios have been able to just leave him be. So at each stage, he'll just sort of argue for the same deal. Um, and, you know, so that's the, so he gets this kind of enormous amount of control right up front. Um, but his best films have always come about from the need to collaborate with someone else. Uh, you know, like I was surprised actually at the number of my favorite Woody Allen films that were actually co-written by someone else. Like, you know, Annie Hall was co-written, Manhattan was co-written, Bullets Over Broadway was co-written, Manhattan Murder Mystery was co-written. Um, so he collaborates with uh, writers, and I think the same is true with actors. Like he, his best films have come when uh, he's worked with an actor of sort of sufficient that he's sufficiently impressed by himself um that that and he really was impressed by Keaton I mean he still is to this day I mean he sings her praises and you know says she's just the most kind of the best comedian to have come out of Hollywood and I think she's certainly got a good claim on that but he um but he sort of when he can do that um when he can relax that need to kind of control the picture the films work now I think the problem with him now or at least the problem with the films now is that yeah, he's kind of a little bit imprisoned by the independence that he's sought, fought so hard to kind of protect in, the, in that um, nobody gets to touch those scripts. Um, nobody gets to push back on anything. Most of the actors he works with nowadays are at least a generation below him, and they all look up to, you know, this great figure, Woody Allen, and who's won sort of four Oscars, and very few of them are going to be... Uh, you know, pushing back to the degree that some of his earlier actors do. You know, he, he likes to, people to change his scripts. And another kind of interesting fact. Yes, him, and he does actually like that, does he? Yeah, he's not precious about the scripts. And he's always encouraging his actors, look, if it doesn't sound right, just change it to something you're comfortable with. And I think back in the days when he made Hannah and Her Sisters, you know, all of those actors on that set felt... Uh, like they were, you know, uh, you know, emboldened enough to do that. I think it's Blue Jasmine. I think we're there, basically Blanchette. You know, I think uh, that there was a terrific kind of collaboration between the two of them over her performance. Um, and you know, Woody Allen, who normally does things in sort of, you know, just a couple of takes. He's not one for giving huge directions to his actors. He just sort of, you know, he's very hands off in that degree. Um, they, with Blue Jasmine, it was take after take after take after take, and you know, Alec Baldwin was just amazed at like Blanchett's kind of stamina. He just couldn't believe how many watch he was putting her through. Yes, maybe when he has a, he's with a character who's strong enough to say, "I want to do that again." You know, and you can sort of, uh, and, and only a great actress could have sort of taken that role on as well. You know, um, you know, she's no uh, sort of putty cat, so. Um, yeah, how no, do you how do you feel that now nowadays when you know obviously there's a new Woody Allen film probably every September isn't there how do you feel when you go into the cinema to see each new one? I'm always hopeful, 
you know, it, you know, <laughs> I, I'm always hopeful There's a, that you never know whether you're going to strike kind of gold. I certainly, you know, I think that, uh, you know, as with all kind of, of the big sort of talents, I think there's, been, there's a sort of cooling off period, you know, towards these in his late sort of late period, so to speak. Um, and it's true of kind of all directors. I mean, it's very much a young man's game. Um, and But every now and again, something will pop up like Blue Jasmine, you know, which, where the writing is just as tight as anything he's he's done, you know, and the construction of that film, you know, is, is, is just fabulously done. It's a, a very elaborate flashbacks, but it's just done, you know, I mean, he or, for instance, all the Hemingway parodies. I, I wasn't a huge fan of Midnight in Paris, but... But the but uh, but I loved Corey Stoll's Hemingway. Yes. Uh, you know, yes. And but and, and and listening to those parodies that that Alan had written for him, they were wonderful. They were as good as anything that he's written for the New Yorker back in the seventies or whatever. Like he was totally on point. <clears throat> and uh, I think the kind of writing is sort of the last thing to kind of go, as it were. He always jokes that there's longevity in his gene pool. I think all his uh, parents and grandparents both lived to. You know, very ripe old ages. Um, you know, but it's, uh, it's funny. It's, uh, it's, it's funny how ageless he is, though. I mean, it's. It, you know, I was thinking, well, so he's going to be eighty this December, um, and then I was like, but actually, hang on, he's always acted eighty. You know, like, like <laughs> yeah, he's like he was sort of fretting about death. You know, in high school. in love and death. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. No, in high school, even earlier. In high school. He spent much of his sort of 20s, you know, mourning the lost era of sort of jazz and sort of golden age Hollywood. I mean, he was like the youngest old fogey kind of on the block, you know, like, uh, so in a funny sort of way, he said, all that's happened is he's just caught up with himself. You know what I mean? Like, he's always acted 80 and now he actually will be, Um, you know. Brilliant thought. uh, Thank you. That's no, great. Yeah, it's th- really a pleasure speaking with you, Kate. Yeah, yeah, you too. And thanks for all your lovely um, writing for us. And I hope you'll do lots more um, very soon. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast, presented by me, Helen Lewis, and produced by Anna Leskovitz. You can find us every week at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast or on iTunes. Our theme music is Devil with the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.